0: Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, thank you for joining us for the March twelfth reading of the Summit Daily News. My name is Lainey Bueller. U.S. Senators Bennett and Hickenlooper call the Postmaster General's response unsatisfactory after meeting to discuss Colorado postal issues by Ryan Spencer. Around the beginning of April, the cluster box near Dan Wall's home, a couple of miles north of Silverthorne in unincorporated Summit County, started overflowing with mail. After weeks with sparse, if any, mail delivery, he said Christmas cards, bills, and letters finally began to arrive. Between February 4th and February 8th, Wall said he received 79 pieces of mail, most with postmarks from December, and one piece postmarked as early as December 2nd. These issues with the post office have basically been going on as long as I've lived here. But they've gotten much worse, Wall said. We've had delayed mail for a very long period of time. The mail here is the worst I've seen anywhere. A 10-year resident of Silverthorne Wall is just one of many residents who have raised concerns about, lack, about lackluster U.S. Postal Service operations in Summit County. Over the past few months, delays in mail delivery and other postal issues have led some residents to receive important documents late and impacted others' access to prescription medications delivered by mail. As officials in several Colorado mountain towns have stated publicly that they are considering legal action against the U.S. Postal Service, some residents, like Wall, have brought the issues to their elected representatives in Washington, D.C. In late January, U.S. Representative Joe Neguse expressed deep concerns about the mismanagement of post offices in western Colorado in a letter to U.S. Postal Service officials that pointed to issues at the Dillon Post Office and Silverthorne Post Office as examples. Then last month, U.S. Senators Michael Bennett and John Nickenlooper invited Postmaster General Louis DeJoy the CEO of the U.S. Postal Service, to visit the state to witness the problems firsthand. The letter stated that the senator's offices had seen a sharp rise in complaints from Coloradans over the past two years and invited to join to tour a local post office. Bennett and Hickenlooper have since met with DeJoy and raised the issues with him directly, according to a news release from their offices. Coloradans are waiting weeks for their mail, Hickenlooper said in the release. That's weeks for prescriptions, Social Security payments, and important bills. In the statement, he described DeJoy's response to the concerns as being... Unsatisfactory. DeJoy did not offer specifics on his com- commitment to improve service and delivery issues facing Coloradans, according to a spokesperson for Bennett's office, but indicated that the U.S. Postal Service was working on improvements. Bennett requested a specific list of what these improvements will be, the spokesperson for his office said, and again invited DeJoy to Colorado. But DeJoy has yet to schedule a visit, the spokesperson said, who said Bennett remains hopeful he will make the trip. At the meeting with Hickenlooper and Bennett, DeJoy detailed the challenges and root causes his analysis has identified in specific Colorado postal routes and facilities, according to a news release from the U.S. Postal Service. DeJoy explained the challenges are directly related to the nature of rural and contract routes and the hiring challenges connected to the local cost of living and housing according to the release. These pressures have occurred due to an increase in the number of local delivery points and package deliveries, according to the U.S. Postal Service. DeJoy told the senators that response teams have been deployed to guide local efforts and personnel resources from local communities and a neighboring state have been sent to assist the release dates. The solutions in mail delivery service inevitably involve human resources, and our workforce, no matter how hardworking, are spread thin in these mountain communities where it is expensive to live and difficult to hire, a challenge that will also need creative solutions from local leaders, Postmaster General DeJoy said in the release. The Postal Service can and will solve problems within our own power, but local economic conditions are not among them. DeJoy said in his statement that the senators appear to understand the issues and to appreciate the multifaceted steps we are taking to deploy resources to improve service. U.S. Postal Service spokesperson James Boxrude said that post offices in Summit County have been caught up with mail delivery for almost a month. The U.S. Postal Service has hired drivers to fill vacant routes, borrowed employees from across the West to augment staff and stabilize delivery, cleaned local facilities, deployed teams to assess mountain community delivery to help streamline and improve operations, and held multiple hiring fairs to replenish staffing, BoxRood said. Thanks to these efforts, all operations have been stabilized and the mail is current, BoxRood said. Still, As residents have experienced issues with the U.S. Postal Service for years, some residents like Wall are not yet convinced that issues will not re-emerge. It was like there was a clot in the system, Wall said, and every once in a while, they'd remove the clot and the stuff would come through. From the business section... Vail Resorts lowers earnings expectations for 2023 and cites too much and not enough snow in different parts of the United States by John LeConte of the Vail Daily. Vail Resorts issued its fiscal 2023 second quarter earnings results on Thursday, March 9th, telling analysts the company is pleased with its improvement in guest experience over last season, but disappointed in variable weather conditions that have required the company to lower its financial expectations for this year. Weather disruptions across the company's 26 eastern U.S. resorts, as well as resorts in the Tahoe area, impacted both operating days and visitation and drove increased operating costs, the company told investors. Season-to-date results at our eastern U.S. resorts continue to be negatively impacted by periods of both unseasonably warm and extreme cold weather, which disrupted operating days, impacted demand, and increased operating costs, said Chief Financial Officer Angela Korch. Across our eastern U.S. resorts, over 25% of planned operating days for the 2022-23 ski season were negatively impacted by extreme weather events, including many days with full or partial resort closures. Grass was still visible on the slopes at some of Vale Resorts, ski resorts on the east, into January, said CEO Kirsten Lynch. These resorts in this grouping in the east are virtually 100% reliant on snowmaking, and in order to do snowmaking, you need cold temperatures, Lynch said. The opposite problem occurred on the other side of the country, where too much snow created problems at Vail Resorts Lake Tahoe properties, Lynch said. As a result of the issues in the eastern and western United States, Vail Resorts updated its fiscal 2023 revenue projections for investors predicting its net income to be between $282 million and $328 million and earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization to be between $831 million and $859 million. Down from the $321 million to $396 million net income and $893 million to $947 million earnings before interest taxes depreciation and amortization predicted at the end of the first quarter. Lynch said, Vail Resorts properties in the East are more reliant on walk-up lift ticket purchasers, something that affects revenue during low snow years. In the East, there's still a large percentage of visitation that occurs on lift tickets. And that is part of the reason why we saw an impact from the limitations our operations and a significant impact because of that reliance on lift tickets, Lynch said. With the company now predicting a reduced income of $39 million to $68 million less than originally expected, approximately $43 million of that reduction will come from the resorts in the East, Lynch said. The majority of the impact occurred after the peak holiday season. And we had expected it to improve, and instead, it actually got worse, she said. What happened here with the East is exactly why we have been focused on. On passes. It's exactly why the strategy of moving as many of our guests into a pass is so critical, Lynch said. In the East, in particular, we have products and pricing that have already launched into the marketplace, and the goal is to use our data to be segmented and targeted to convey the benefits of moving. From a lift ticket into an advanced commitment product. The remainder of the predicted $39 million to $68 million income reduction comes from the disruptions in the Tahoe area, Lynch said. The bright spots for this season occurred in Canada, Colorado, and Utah, Lynch said where skier visits have been strong and are expected to remain that way. At Whistler Blackcomb in Canada, we have seen a very strong return of destination visitation, Lynch said. Incredible momentum, a return of international visitation, and all of the trends and indicators continue to support that we should be set up for a strong rest of the season at Whistler Blackcomb, traffic impacts have been reported in Whistler with British Columbia's Highway 99 seeing bumper-to-bumper traffic throughout the Sea-to-Sky corridor on the weekends. In late January, the rise And Alpine Instagram account, which tracks conditions in Whistler, reported a 1.5-hour commute from Creekside Village to Whistler Blackcomb, a three-mile journey that takes seven minutes with no traffic. The strong demand for skiing in Whistler helped boost Vail Resort's season-to-date total skier visits, which are up 3.6% compared to the prior year, despite the weather impacts to the eastern U.S. resorts and the Tahoe area. While Vail Resorts doesn't release individual skier day data, Vail's busiest day of the season, according to Cars in Town, came on February 24th, when 541 cars spilled out of the parking garages and onto the town South Frontage Road. In Colorado we continue to be pleased with the results that we're seeing in that segment and believe we are set up for a strong spring, Lynch said. The conditions are fantastic. The timing of Easter is actually very conducive to vacations occurring over spring break. So I think we're set up in a good spot. Is your Summit County bar or restaurant celebrating St. Patrick's Day? Tell the Summit Daily News by Jenna DeJong. Summit County bars or restaurants that are celebrating St. Patrick's Day can tell the Summit Daily News for a chance to be featured in a roundup Of plans for the holiday. The article will list places where readers can get a pint and celebrate with live music, food specials, and other celebrations. The guide is already live on summitdaily.com, but it will be updated online before being printed in the Wednesday, March 15th issue. Those interested in being included can email Digital Engagement Editor Jenna Dejong at jdejong at summitdaily.com before 10 a.m. on Tuesday, March 14th, to be featured. Grand County residents speak out against the Winta Basin Railway by Meg Sawyers of Sky High News. Grand County. The catastrophic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, on February 3rd, has brought danger of freight train accidents to the forefront of people's minds. A month later, a second trail train derailment in Ohio reinforced this danger. Derailments have Grand County residents especially worried because trains carrying hazardous material are set to travel through their backyard. Utah oil producers plan to construct a railway to transport waxy crude oil through Colorado. The Winta, that's U-I-N-T-A, Basin Railway would connect Utah's oil fields to the National Union Pacific Rail Line. This means tanker cars carrying 350,000 barrels of waxy crude will rumble through Grand County each day. The crude will travel through Gore and Byers Canyons following the Colorado and Fraser Rivers. The trains then pass through Winter Park's Moffat Tunnel toward Denver and eventually down to Gulf Coast refineries. Every town in Grand County would experience this increase in train traffic. In January, Grand County commissioners wrote a letter of opposition to the railway unless safety measures were put. Into place. They addressed their letters to state officials and other stakeholders, emphasizing that a derailment of the tanker cars would be catastrophic to the environment. During their February 21st meeting, commissioners discussed another concern on top of derailment stopped trains that prevent the passage of vehicles. This concern was brought to their attention by Tabernash resident, Tim Moreland. Resident Cindy Bendal also sent a letter of concern to commissioners. The Union Pacific line runs along the Fraser River and into the town of Tabernash. As the main line nears Moreland's neighborhood, it branches off in a spur a short branch to manage rail traffic. Access to the neighborhood is through one railroad crossing over the spur. Moreland provided the commissioners with a letter outlining his fears for the safety of his neighborhood. Over the years, we've been blocked in and out of the neighborhood because the train will park over the crossing, sometimes for hours, blocking our only neighborhood access, he wrote. Blocking our single crossing creates an obvious hazard that denies access for any emergency services. In addition, when we are blocked for extended periods, residents will crawl over or under the train to get home. At the meeting, Moreland recommended that the railroad build a secondary access to solve this issue. He added, this is especially important because the crude oil trains will be two miles long and much more likely to extend extend over the crossing. His second recommendation for the rail. Road would be to build a secondary track along the Fraser Flats. As trains travel from Tabernash to Fraser, they pass through the flats for over two miles. This secondary track in a wide open area would be the perfect alternative for the spur for stopping trains. I'm just hoping that this board can be our voice to ask for some mitigation, he said. Then our representatives in Washington can elevate our concerns because it feels like the impacts got looked at hard in Utah, but I don't feel like they've looked at the impacts down the line at all for the increased traffic and the train size. The commissioners thanked Moreland for bringing the safety concern to their attention and stated they would do everything in their power to mitigate risk of stopped trains. Commissioner Merritt Link stated that the Winta Basin Railway project is coming on the heels of East Palestine's derailment. Experts are still investigating the health and environmental impacts of the fiery accident, and this might lend an edge of urgency to the commissioner's requests. There's a lot of screw-ups with that incident. I think that the railroads do need to be accountable for these small towns up the line that they tend to just want to ignore, said Link. Commissioners stated they will proactively research other places of concern on the rail line and pursue grant opportunities to fund solutions such as building a bridge or railroad siding. Whether it's this Winta line or something else, the rail's going to likely grow and they're not going to build a new track, said Commissioner Richard Semino. It's a dilemma. Link recommended sending another letter with Moreland's comments to their state officials and the Union Pacific Railroad. Commissioner Semino stated their best course of action was to involve Grand County Road and Bridge. Currently, Road and Bridge contacts the Union Pacific Railroad to break train cars when they are stopped at crossings. However, the railroad never responds to these calls. Cimino recommended improving the communication between road and bridge and the railroad to ensure someone will actually break the trains. I think we need to get serious about not just focusing on the potential additional traffic from the Winta project, but projects overall, added Commissioner Randy George. It's been a problem going on for decades, and it's not getting better. And certainly, the railroad has a lot more technology than they ever did before. The commissioners concluded they will proactively search for solutions of all train blockages in the county. They will also forward Moreland's comments to Governor Jared Polis' office. U.S. Senators and Representatives, as well as the Union Pacific Railroad. U.S. legislators are also formulating their letters of opposition to the railway. On March 6th, U.S. Senator Michael Bennett and Representative Joe Neguse addressed a letter to U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack requesting that the U.S. Forest Service not issue the final permit for the railway. Grand County residents still have time to make their voices heard to federal officials. Railway proponents have recently passed a proposal to allow roughly $2 billion of the railway's construction costs to be funded through federally issued bonds. Residents who oppose federal funding of the project can write Pete Buttigieg, Secretary of U.S. Department of Transportation, by March 9th. Residents can also attend a virtual meeting on March 9th, it's too late now, held by Utah's Seven County Infrastructure Coalition, which is leading the railway project. Visit s-c-i-c-utah.org. That's s-c-i-c-utah.org to attend the meeting. Big Changes Coming to Indy Pass, The Alternative to Epic and Icon Passes by John Leconte of The Vale Daily. The Indy Pass Independent Ski Area's answer to the Epic and Icon Megapasses is undergoing some major changes, but current pass holders are unlikely to notice much of the shakeup. On Monday, those current pass holders were offered first crack at renewing their Indy Passes for next season. And a mad rush ensued as Indy Pass announced that it will limit the total amount of passes sold for next season. The Indy Pass was released in 2019 and has proven to be a success in the years that followed. It started by offering pass holders a few days of access to a few dozen ski hills across the United States and by 2022 23, it had grown to offer access to more than 139 ski areas worldwide, including several in Colorado. The Indy Pass works like a co op, with the small businesses sharing the profits. We take 85% of all the pass revenue. And we pay it out based on redemptions, says founder Doug Fish. It's really a marketing program. It's designed to introduce people to new resorts that they probably haven't been to. And it's designed to give a collective voice of the oft-forgotten and overlooked little guys. Tough Tech Banding together independent ski area operators to form a collective pass of their own sounded like an obvious idea. But like so many great plans, the conception came much easier than the execution. Managing the back end which ski area gets paid for an IndyPass redemption, how those ski areas verify the validity of an Indy pass? Preventing fraud from pass sharing is a complicated business when you consider that all of those ski areas use different point-of-sale, bookkeeping, pass, printing systems, and even languages. It's something that theoretically could be solved through a dedicated software system, but no such system existed prior to the IndyPass, and the development of such a system would take a massive amount of time and money. Enter Colorado-based Antabini systems a ski area software company founded by a lover of independent ski areas who just happened to have the bandwidth to develop such a system in 2019. Entavini Systems owner Eric Morganson is young, 36 years old with a deep background in skiing that includes a stint working as an instructor for Vail Resorts, an experience he said motivated him to focus on independent skiing operations. He started Antabini Systems in 2016, met IndyPass founder Doug Fish in 2019 on a cold call, and both had the realization that some serious Tech was needed to help IndyPass push back against the mega passes. Morganson said Entebini, which is based in Grand County, happened to be in the right place in 2019 to take on the IndyPass project, which he described as being a non commercial project we had a huge passion for helping independent skiers and we were already down the road on building different systems that would align from a technical and personal purpose standpoint he said as proof of his passion for independent skiers, Morganson points to a 2004 letter to the editor published in the buffalo news which he penned at age 16 following the closing of Ski Tamarack in western New York. Words cannot do justice to the feelings of so many in western New York after the closing of Ski Tamarack, Morganson wrote. I grew up at Tamarack, taking my first turns at the age of three. Anyone who has been there knows that it was not the skiing that made it special. It was the people, the ski patrol that had been there for three generations, the ski school that taught so many in western New York how to make those first tough turns and, most of all, the family that ran it. Indy Passing the Torch Indy Pass owner Doug Fish announced this month that he has sold the company. The purchaser? None other than Morganson and Entebene Systems. It's the completion of a full circle effort for Morganson who describes the acquisition as a dream come true. But within the purchase comes another set of non-commercial considerations for Entebene Systems. Amid the cost of the purchase and the enormous task of managing the new business, not raising the price of the Indy Pass was a tall order. And that's been the difficult part, to keep skiing affordable for families, Morganson said. We worked really hard to keep the base pass under $300 and the Indy Plus under $400, and Doug Fish deserves a lot of credit for being part of the push. Another decision came in the form of a limitation on total pass sales. We want to grow responsibly, Morganson said. First and foremost, We need to keep the Indy experience from getting epically out of control. In a personal letter to all pass holders, Morganson furthered the point by saying, "The Indy ski pass has done a remarkable job promoting the independent and authentic snow sports experience, but we're also responsible for preserving those experiences." We will never put promotion ahead of preservation. Because of that, Indie Pass will limit pay- pass sales for the coming season, offering our current pass holders an opportunity to renew first. Several other small changes are taking place as well. A 3% service fee assessed in the final moments of purchase, has been eliminated. A $10 physical RFID pass, something the IndyPass had managed to avoid, will now be offered as a way to speed up the redemption process. And an old-fashioned version of Pass Insurance one ski areas have long offered to pre purchasers who show up to the ticket window on crutches, will now come with the Indy Pass. Mogensen described it in a recent Facebook post that received over 20,000 views. We will not be trying to upgrade or upsell anyone into injury. Pass insurance, he wrote. If you have an accident that keeps you from being on the snow, just let us know and we'll do the right thing by supporting you with a refund. While 2022-23 Indy Pass holders received the first crack at renewal on Monday, a quickly growing waiting list has been formed for all newcomers PASS sales will open to the waiting list on March 24th, and a payment plan is also being offered. Another touch, Mogensen said, and Tabini Systems is proud to provide. It comes out to less than $35 per month when spread over eight payments. Lots of places charge more than that to park for a single day, he said. Panera Bread proposes an opening date for this month, the town of Dillon says. A tax incentive offer will expire if the location is not open by June 30th, by Ryan Spencer. Dillon Town Manager Nathan Johnson told the Town Council on Tuesday, March 7th that the new Panera Bread location has proposed an opening date of March 27th. At the meeting, the Council unanimously approved a third amendment to an economic development agreement for the project. That agreement which provides a sales tax incentive for Panera, has a termination date of June 30th if the location has not opened by that time. I would hope that they would open in March, Johnson said. It might be a good time, especially with, like, mud season coming up. The Council first approved an economic development agreement related to the Panera Bread location on October 2, 2018, under which the developers could be reimbursed $400,000 in sales taxes over 10 years. But the opening of the location at 257 Dillon Ridge Road has been pushed back several times, with Panera Bread representatives citing issues related to the pandemic as the reason for the delay. We faced some challenges, a lot due to the pandemic, with sourcing materials and things like that, Panera Bread Marketing Manager Megan Anderson said last month, but we are planning an opening. Anderson could not provide an exact opening date for the location last month, but said she expects the new Panera Bread to open within the next six months. She did not return a request for comment on Wednesday. The Panera Bread location will include a drive-thru and seat 94 people. It will feature unique design elements. Not typical of other locations to highlight the Ski Town vibe, Anderson previously said. Panera Bread is in the process of hiring 60 people to work at the location, she said. Ten years ago, March 4th, 2013. More than 50 vehicles were tangled up in crashes and Interstate 70 was closed most of the afternoon as a heavy storm moved through the area, the Vale Daily reported. After closing I-70 around 1.30 p.m., the Colorado Department of Transportation reopened both lanes in both directions by 5.15 p.m., the Vale Daily reported. Twenty years ago, that would be march twelfth, two thousand three. Middle Creek, Vale's largest affordable housing project to date, was nearly nearing final approvals, the Vale Daily reported. The project survived more than twenty months in the review process, a complete redesign and an appeal, the Daily reported. The twenty third. $3 million dollar project received an initial approval from the Town of Vales Design Review Board in early March. The design board in the second is the second board to shape the project which will offer 142 apartments at rents starting at $540 for a studio and topping out at $1,750 for a three-bedroom unit, the Daily reported. Funded through nearly $16 million in public subsidies, as well as a 50-year free lease on the land from the town, Middle Creek will include a $1 million child care center to replace ABC and the learning tree as mandated by the town. Thirty years ago, which would be March 5th, 1993, the good snow year allowed skiers to explore the slope below Lion's Head rock formation in Mintern, disturbing elk in the area. The face overlooking the town of Mintern, has collected enough snow this winter to lay down some tracks, the Vale Trail reported. Unfortunately, the skiers have inspired the elk that congregate in the area to make some tracks of their own. The elk, which are unaccustomed to sharing the land with skiers, snowboarders, and their dogs, have been running down the hill in a panic due to the invasion of their space. A cow elk had to be killed after it suffered a broken hip, and officials have reported seeing the animals entangled in fences and wandering astray near the town, easily falling prey to coyotes, dogs, and cars in the area. Forty years ago, that would be March 7th through the 12th of 1983, the American Ski Classic, a celebrity ski challenge turned World Cup event, took place in Vail and Beaver Creek. Opening ceremonies and a torchlight parade took place on Monday, March 7th, 1983, followed by a men's World Cup giant slalom on the International Course in Vail on Tuesday. American Phil Mayer won the World Cup race, edging out Sweden's Ingmar Stenmark. A dual slalom legends race took place at Beaver Creek on Wednesday, featuring Stein Eriksson and members of the 1936 U.S. Olympic team. Otto Studi won the men's event, and Kiki Cutter won the women's event. The Celebrity Cup Pro-Am event took place on Thursday and Friday with top honors going to Vail local Susie Korok Husted's team, which also included Denver Post publisher Lee Guitar, Hans Oberlohr of Eagle Park Central, Jeff Grout of Manufacturers Hanover Trust, and Bruce Falkenberg of the Spectrum Group. In second place was Leif Gravel's team, which also included George Gillett, Jack Marshall, Jan Helen, and Dave Peterson. Another World Cup giant slalom, this time featuring the fastest women in the world, closed out the event on Saturday. Americans Tamara McKinney and Cindy Nelson finished first and second in the event. And... Fifty years ago, which would be March 8th, 1973, the Eisenhower Tunnel officially opened to motorists looking to avoid US Highway 6 on Loveland Pass. A dedication took place at the east portal of the tunnel, and the public was invited to attend. A large gathering took place to celebrate the tunnel's completion, with hundreds of people packing it from wall to wall to listen to an official dedication from Colorado Governor John Love. Even though speeds through the 1.7-mile-long tunnel will be at a relatively slow pace, hopefully, the new route can conceivably cut from 20 to 30 to 40 minutes off the elapsed time from Vail to Denver, plus offering a highway without the white-knuckle road that many have feared, wrote Vail trail skipper George Knox. Resorts is closing 19 retail locations in Aspen, Snowmass Village, and Telluride by Aldo Svaldi from the Denver Post. Broomfield. SSI Venture, the retail arm of Broomfield-based Vail Resorts, has informed the state that it plans to close 19 equipment rental and retail locations in Aspen, Telluride, and Snowmass Village, permanently eliminating 69 jobs. The closures, which will happen once the ski season ends, are tied to the company's decision to not renew store leases for another season. SSI Venture informed the Colorado Department of Labor in a Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act dated February 27th. Colorado Springs seeks to keep water rights tied to dams and reservoirs The town of Breckenridge and Summit County government oppose the move by Heather Sackett, Colorado Springs. A front range water provider is entering its eighth year of trying to keep water rights alive for three small reservoirs in the headwaters of the Blue River in Summit County to take more water from the western slope. Colorado Springs Utilities has been mired in Water Court since 2015, fighting for its conditional water rights, which date to 1952 and are tied to three proposed reservoirs. Lower Blue Lake Reservoir, which would be built in Monte Cristo Creek with a 50-foot-tall dam and hold 1,006 acre feet of water. Spruce Lake Reservoir, which would be built on Spruce Creek with an 80 to 90 foot tall dam and hold 1,542 acre feet, and Mayflower Reservoir, which would also be built on Spruce Creek with a 75 to 85 foot tall dam and hold 618 acre feet. An acre foot is the amount of water needed to cover an acre of land to a depth of one foot. The water rights case has eight different opposers, including the town of Breckenridge, Summit County, the Colorado River Water Conservation District, agricultural and domestic water users in the Grand Valley, the Lower Arkansas Water Conservancy District, and a private landowner who has mining claims in the area. Most of the opposers say they own water rights in the area that may be adversely impacted if the Blue River Project's conditional rights are granted. Representatives from the town of Breckenridge, Summit County, and Colorado Springs Utilities all declined to comment on the case to Aspen Journalism. The proposed reservoirs would feed into Colorado Springs' continental Hoosier system, also known as the Blue River Project, which takes water from the headwaters of the Blue River between Breckenridge and Alma to Colorado Springs via the Hoosier Tunnel, Montgomery Reservoir, and Blue River Pipeline. It's the city's first and oldest Trans Mountain Diversion Project, the Hoosier Tunnel takes an average of about 8,000 acre-feet of water a year, according to state diversion records. Each year... Transmountain diversions take about 500,000 acre feet from the Colorado River Basin to the Front Range. Colorado Springs is a large part of this vast network of tunnels and conveyance systems that move water from the west side of the Continental Divide to the east side where the state's biggest cities are located. Colorado Springs Utilities, which serves more than 600,000 customers in the Pikes Peak region, takes water from the headwaters of the frying pan, Roaring Fork, Eagle, and Blue Rivers, all tributaries of the Colorado River. Colorado Springs gets 50% of its raw water supply, about 50,000 acre-feet annually, from the Colorado River Basin, according to Jennifer Jordan, public affairs specialist with Colorado Springs Utilities. The existing Blue River system represents about 9% of Colorado Springs' total raw water supply, she said. Colorado Springs Utilities and the City of Aurora are working on another potential trans-mountain diversion project, a reservoir on Lower Homestay Creek in the Eagle River Basin that would hold between 6,850 acre-feet and 20,000 acre-feet. The River District, which was formed in 1937 in part to fight trans-mountain diversions that take water from the Western Slope, is opposing the Blue River water rights case. We are open to hear what the applicants have to say about the project, what their needs are, and if they can provide meaningful compensation and mitigation of the impact, said Peter Fleming. River District General Council. At the end of the day, there might be a deal where the West Slope gets a result that hopefully makes sense. A water rights placeholder. In Colorado water law, the prior appropriation doctrine reigns supreme. Those with the oldest water rights get first use of the water, making the oldest rights the most valuable or senior. Under the prior appropriation system, a water user has to simply put water to beneficial use, for example, irrigating land or using water in a home. To get a water right. The user can then ask a court to make it official, securing their place in line. Conditional water rights are an exception to this rule, letting a water user, such as Colorado Springs Utilities, save their place in line in the prior appropriation system while they work to develop big, complicated, multi-year water projects, but they must file a diligence application with the water court every six years, proving that they have, in fact, been working toward developing the project and that they can and will eventually put the water to beneficial use. Hoarding water rights with no real plan to put them to beneficial use amounts to speculation and is not Allowed. In its 2015 diligence filing, Colorado Springs Utilities said during the previous six years that it had hired consultants, Wilson Water Group and its subcontractors, to do a water supply assessment, an engineering and geotechnical evaluation of each reservoir site. And an investigation of potential environmental effects of development of the reservoirs. Colorado Springs Utilities said it also acquired 28 undeveloped parcels of land to protect the project's infrastructure and also performed maintenance work in other parts of the Blue River system that contributed to more than $4.2 million in spending on the overall Blue River project. Assistant Pitkin County Attorney Laura Makar is not involved in the Blue River case, but she is a legal expert on conditional water rights. Thank you for joining us for the Summit News.